Hello and welcome to a new type of episode of Bright On Buddhism called the Asian Religion Series. In this series, we will be discussing religious traditions in Asia other than Buddhism. And as it has spread all across East Asia, it has developed, localized, and syncretized with local traditions in fascinating and significant ways. As such, we cannot provide a complete picture of East Asian Buddhism without discussing those local traditions such as they are and such as they were. Today we will be discussing Confucianism, a very historically and culturally significant tradition originating in China. We hope you enjoy. Confucianism is the modern Western word that we use to refer to adherence to the teachings of the ancient Chinese thinker Confucius. The name Confucius is a Latinization of his real Chinese name, Kong Fuzi, or Master Kong. Master Kong lived around the same time as the historical Buddha. He was born in the state of Lu, in modern-day Shandong, in 551 BCE, and lived until about 479 BCE. This is during what is called the Spring and Autumn period of Chinese history, which is named after one of Master Kong's works, the Spring and Autumn Annals. During this time period, what we now call China was broken up into numerous states of varying sizes and varying amounts of military and political power. All of these states were jockeying with each other for power, influence, and resources. This would be followed by the Warring States period, where many of these states waged open warfare against each other in an attempt to conquer and unify all of the various states into a single state ruled by a single ruler. The chaos and warfare of this era is said to have strongly influenced Master Kong's works, which we will see center around proper rulership and social relations. Master Kong also lived during what scholars call the Axial Age, which lasted from the 8th to the 3rd century BCE. During this age, we can see the first evidence of the development of Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and Platonism, which is centered around the philosophy of Plato. As such, one of the defining characteristics of this age is human beings engaging in written searches for the meaning of the universe, which led to the rise of a previously unseen class of religious elites to which the Buddha, Master Kong, and others belong. This idea of the Axial Age is disputed mainly because there is no common cause among all the different thinkers I mentioned for them to start doing what they did. Moreover, there is no exchange between many of these movements during this time period, and none of the thinkers I mention are the first or the last people to do philosophy or to do religion. The biggest flaw of the idea is that it only vaguely defines what the thinkers themselves were doing, since philosophy and religion are descriptors that didn't exist in our lexicon in the way that we define them now until the modern era. All that aside, Master Kong is regarded as one of these Axial Age thinkers. Master Kong grew up in poverty in the state of Lu, and was educated in schools for commoners wherein he learned the six arts. These six arts are six pursuits which are still practiced by Confucians to this day, and they are ritual, music, archery, equestrianism, calligraphy, and math. He married and started a family at age 19. Master Kong was born into the class of Shi, which existed between the aristocracy and the common people. This allowed him access to education and to government work, which lower classes might not have had access to. However, many of the government positions that were accessible to this class of people were very low-level bureaucratic positions, and they weren't high-level aristocratic positions. He is said to have worked in various government jobs during his political career, and as a bookkeeper and a caretaker of sheep and horses, and many other things. But we should know that his life history is very much the subject of a great deal of myth and legend. It's what we call hagiography, or the biography of holy figures. 
These biographies are embellished and sometimes have completely ahistorical components, and the reason that they have those is that the subject of the biography represents an idea, a doctrine, a movement, and an agenda, and so the compilers of the hagiography can speak through the life story of the holy figure. When I say it like that, I'm sure that it sounds very nefarious, and it very much is in many cases, but it's not necessarily nefarious in every case. Before we talk about Confucian texts, we should talk about Chinese religion during the time of Master Kong's life in general. To even call it religion opens me up to a lot of problems in the way that I'm speaking about it, and the reason why is because, as I said before, religion is a modern concept that can't really be readily read back onto history in an effective manner. Additionally, even if we have this word or concept of religion in the modern era, whether or not it's problematic to read it back onto the past, we actually can't come up with a good definition of it ourselves in the modern era. So it's not always the right thing to do to call something that's going on in the past a religious practice or a religious act or a religious movement. However, for the purposes of this episode, we can say religion, knowing that it's problematic, just to describe what's going on. At this time period, Chinese religion functioned according to a meta-divine realm. This is as opposed to Western religions, which function on a monotheistic cosmology. In the West, we are mostly familiar with this monotheistic cosmology. In it, there is one God who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, and this world and everything in it, including us, is the object of that God's creation, and we must transcend the realm that we are in to go live with that God in the afterlife. That creates a dichotomy between here and there. Here is everyday life, where things are bad, and there is heaven or hell, where things are either infinitely better or infinitely worse. Some monotheistic religions don't believe in a hell in the same sense as Christianity does, so their realm of the afterlife must be understood a little bit differently. But the ultimate point is that the afterlife is somewhere other than here. The religions which function according to this meta-divine realm are quite different. They have pantheons of gods, and none of them is individually omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. The realm we live in is not the object of their creation, either, but is the result of some sort of self-driven or natural or spontaneous process. Additionally, there is no stark dichotomy between the present life and the afterlife. In these cosmologies, when people die, they may go beyond our mundane senses, but they are not said to continue existing in an afterlife which is somewhere far away. They, in fact, are said to continue to exist in this world as part of the meta-divine realm. That realm governs this one in some important ways, but it is overlaid on it at the same time, and thus is not distant in the sense that heaven or hell is. This meta-divine realm best describes Chinese religion at the time of Kong's life. In terms of specific characteristics, we can say that there was a hierarchy in this realm that is mirrored in the meta-divine realm and this hierarchy is bureaucratic and participative. Both hierarchies are responsible for maintaining the order and the balance of the universe, and their activities are meaningful and visible through all phenomena. Our actions here and in the meta-divine realm both have resonating consequences for both realms. As such, hierarchies and bureaucracies in both realms need to cooperate and communicate through ritual to preserve and maintain the universe as it is. If somebody does not uphold their responsibility, the result can be famine, disease, regime change, etc. The rituals that primarily took place were rituals of ancestor worship. Offerings were made to those who passed on, and this made sure that the meta-divine realm did not wreak havoc on our realm. If these rituals were upheld and completed and maintained in a satisfactory fashion, then the members of the hierarchy of this realm were said to be in the good graces of that of the meta-divine realm. 
If the hierarchy and the bureaucracy of this realm was said to be in the good graces of the meta-divine realm, then they were maintaining what is called the Mandate of Heaven, or Tianming, as it is called in Chinese. This Mandate of Heaven is the divine right to rule, which is afforded to virtuous rulers in this realm by the ancestors and deities of the meta-divine realm. The way that you know if you have that mandate or not is to look at your realm and see. If there is good harvest, peace, appropriate and honest government, harmony among the people, and moral integrity in the kingdom, then you as the ruler are maintaining the mandate of heaven. You have it and everything is going well. If you look around your kingdom and there is war, famine, civil unrest, an upended social hierarchy, corrupt government, dishonesty, and crime in your kingdom, you have lost it. This loss is regarded as a moral failure on the part of the ruler, as he is seen to be the top of this social pyramid, this hierarchy that exists in this realm. Thus, the ruler has the responsibility to be moral and just, because if he is moral and just, then his government will be too. If the government is moral and just, then naturally, the people will also be moral and just and harmonious, and thus, the kingdom will be held in great harmony, and it will be very prosperous, and things will go well. However, if this ruler is immoral or unjust in any way, then his government will naturally be immoral and unjust, and if the government is that way, then the people will also be corrupt and unjust, and this can lead to the dissolution of the entire kingdom. When we discuss Master Kong's philosophy and specifics in a moment, you'll see how all of this plays into it. An important thing to know for Master Kong's philosophy going into it is that he assumes, he believes, he sees the world around him during his lifetime as completely fallen. He believes that the mandate of heaven is lost, and this is resulting in the unrest, the immorality, and the chaos that he perceives in his world. Thus, his philosophy proposes a path back to the restoration of order, and thus the restoration of the mandate of heaven. Kong never wrote anything down himself, just like the Buddha and Jesus never did, and the texts that we have come to us from his students. After his death, his students compiled and collected sayings and dialogues of his into a text known as the Analects. This text is extremely important and central to Confucianism and to East Asian culture as a whole. In it, the principles at work in Confucianism are laid out. Essentially, the Confucian goal is to bring the country back to the state that it was during the ancient Zhou dynasty, which predates Kong by about 500 years. According to the Confucian perspective, the Zhou dynasty realized the ideal of moral and upright rulership, and thus going back to their way of doing things would restore peace and harmony to the realm. It is no coincidence that Master Kong posed himself as the purveyor of the sagely knowledge of the Zhou dynasty. Indeed, he claims to transmit the ancient ways in his teachings rather than innovating or making them up on his own. The path forward that he proposes, or the path backward you might say, is centered around education. If one educates themselves in the Chinese classics, which are collections of philosophy and poetry and literature, which date all the way back to the Zhou dynasty, and which are taught to people when they want to serve in governmental positions, then they can cultivate the proper social order in the world. They do this by expressing the knowledge that they have gained from studying these classics and being educated in them, and thus by educating others. And when this is done, everybody is lifted up, and the whole world is more harmonious and prosperous, and the mandate of heaven is afforded back to the ruler. If the ruler is uneducated in these classics or improperly educated, then the entire government will be run incorrectly, inefficiently, and immorally and corruptly. And if the members of the government are not educated, then they won't be able to serve their roles as members of the hierarchy, of the bureaucracy, of this realm, properly. 
And if neither of them are educated, then the people too will not value education and thus will not seek it out for themselves. And the result would be a society that is immoral, unjust, and disharmonious. Again, Master Kong says that he's not showing anybody anything new. He's not making anything up on his own. What he's actually doing is he's just transmitting something that's been lost, something that's been forgotten, something that people are no longer interested in during his lifetime. And he's trying to revitalize those things and trying to reform society according to them because of all of the civil unrest and political unrest that he sees going on in the world around him. The Chinese classics, he believes, represent a path to the restoration of the mandate of heaven. The social order that results from education in these classics are predicated on five virtues, which will come about in a person through the effort that they put forth in their education. These virtues are benevolence, filial piety, reciprocity, ritual propriety, and culture. Benevolence is literally just being fantastic to anybody and everybody indiscriminately all the time. Filial piety is respect and honor towards one's family. In short, reciprocity, then, is the golden rule. Treat others exactly how you wish to be treated. However, it should be noted that this isn't exactly the same as the golden rule because it implies a hierarchical relationship. The principle of reciprocity emphasizes the hierarchical nature of relationships and how each transaction and interaction that one has ought to be conscientious of the proper reciprocal nature of that relationship and the hierarchy that underlies it. Ritual propriety refers to the proper way to interact with the meta-divine realm. It reflects people's duty to that realm in order to maintain the mandate of heaven and the great order of the world. This is expressed through ancestor worship rituals. Culture refers to the subtle and fine tastes that people cultivate as a result of their education in poetry and philosophy. This is what we might think of in the West in the modern era as scholarly refinement, intellectualism. All five of these virtues are pointed toward becoming the ideal man according to Confucian philosophy, which is the Junza, the scholar gentleman. This person is highly educated, plays out their roles and relationships to the fullest, and embodies all five of these virtues in all aspects of their lives. If they're in a position of power, then they govern according to the welfare of the people, and if they're not in a position of power, then they follow their ruler in the proper fashion, and in all things, they are educated and cultured, and in all things, they respect the five cardinal relationships. These five cardinal relationships are five hierarchical relationships, which are the foundations of the ideal Confucian society. These relationships are parent-child, ruler-subject, husband-wife, older sibling, younger sibling, and friend-friend. In each of these relationships, one party has more power than the other, and that person must use that power wisely, carefully, benevolently, and for the welfare of all parties involved. If everybody did what Kong laid out here, then the world would achieve the Tao, which is a very important and difficult-to-define concept that we will revisit in the Taoism episode. The Tao, in Confucianism, is the ideal ultimate reality, which in Kong's case refers to social order or social hierarchy that is proper and that is reflective of the social order in the meta-divine realm. This term, the Tao, can be translated to mean the way. And in Confucianism, it really literally means the way of the ancient sages, the way of the Zhou dynasty sage kings. You'll note that when I was discussing the Junza, the scholar gentleman, I was specifically using male gendered words. And the reason for that is that this education and these positions of social power and this hierarchy is very much ignorant of women. Women do not seek this kind of education, and women do not fit into this social order in a proper fashion the same way a man does. 
It's because during this time, the wife was expected to be subservient to the husband, the mother subservient to the son. And in this case, Confucianism is quite sexist. In Confucianism, as it is written, there are not very many routes for women to achieve social power, for women to achieve education, and for women to achieve any amount of position in this social hierarchy, whether it's the one in the current realm that we are in or in the meta-divine realm, which the gods and the deities and the ancestors are in. Naturally, principles such as filial piety apply to them too. Someone ought to be very pious toward their mother just as much as their father. And it applies to the five cardinal relationships in the sense of sibling-sibling or friend-friend. In relationships like those where one or both parties are women, then of course, all of these same principles matter and these relationships should be treated the same. However, it's important to note that there is no scholar-gentlewoman. Women were not allowed to hold positions in government, and so it's just a scholar-gentleman, the Jumza. The reason why we need to talk about Confucianism on a Buddhism show is that Confucians represented very stalwart opponents to Buddhism when Buddhism entered China in the first century of the Common Era. As we've mentioned before, Buddhism values a monastic lifestyle, it values sacrifice of the body, and it has a completely different cosmology than that which is established in Confucianism. As a result, Confucians were some of the staunchest opponents to the adoption or promulgation of Buddhism in China when it entered the region by means of the Silk Route in the first century. Confucianism views sacrifice of the body, as is discussed in the Jataka tales, for example, as very problematic. The reason why it's problematic is because in Confucianism, the body that you have is a gift that's given to you from your family and from your ancestors. And to sacrifice it, or to damage it, or to willfully do some sort of harm to it is to reject that gift, and thus to be ungrateful to your family and your ancestors. The response to this that the Buddhists had was, we have been reincarnating since time immeasurable. We have had nearly infinite, but not infinite, lifetimes. And so, at one time or the other, everyone on earth, every single sentient being, has been at one time your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, your ruler, your friend, all of it. And so, whenever you're doing sacrifice, not only are you doing it for the great compassion towards all of them, trying to remedy the suffering of the world, but also the idea that this body is more special than any other body just simply doesn't work. This is an issue of non-duality, you might say. Another problem that Confucians had with Buddhism was the issue of renunciation. Confucianism is inherently a social philosophy, which presents a model by which one optimizes their position and their role in a family system, a social system, and a political system. And so to renounce, to exit any of those systems, as is encouraged in Buddhism, flies in the face of that obligation and disrespects that family, that community, and that government system. The response to this problem that Buddhists had is actually a little bit more complicated because there's several different ones. One response is obviously this issue of non-duality that we mentioned a moment ago. There is no here or there inside or outside this or that system. All of it is one system. It's samsara. It's suffering. And we are renouncing in order to remedy suffering. The other response is not even a response as much as it is really a localization of Buddhism to the system into which it entered. We've talked about how in certain Mahayana sutras, such as the Vimalakirti Sutra, it is encouraged that a person who is seeking the Bodhisattva path go where the suffering is and thus go where the sentient beings are, fully renouncing in the sense of pulling away from all people, all sentient beings, for the purpose of study and meditation, is a lesser kind of compassion and a lesser kind of salvific presence than is to go where everyone is 
and to be a member of the community of which you are a member. This doesn't mean that suddenly in Chinese Mahayana, every single temple, every single monastic organization was now in the biggest and most populated areas. Instead, it means that a lot more were than had previously been. Another result of this is that some of the rules for monastics that we've talked about before started to be relaxed, especially as Buddhism urbanized and became a religion of the elite, such as the emperors and rulers and politicians. Some of these rules that got bent were the rule against handling money, the rule against eating after noontime, and other such rules. In this paradigm, renunciation started to become more symbolic. Whereas in India previously, renunciation literally meant going away from populated areas in order to practice and study meditation and read the sutras, in China, it meant that you were symbolically renouncing desire, pleasure, pain, all of these sensory diversions which lead to suffering. Again, this doesn't mean that there weren't people who went out into the forest and studied and practiced meditation in solitude. Theravada Buddhism, for example, and the Path of the Arhat were not completely dropped whenever Buddhism went to China. It's just that Mahayana became very popular, and this new Vimalakirti Sutra model of renunciation, where you actually went where the suffering was to save people, became more popular. Additionally, this original enlightenment doctrine and this Buddha nature doctrine had something to do with the fact that these Buddhists were allowed to do many more things that they had not been able to do before because the idea was they were already enlightened. They were doing it to save people. They were doing it as a skillful means, perhaps, or they were doing it to return to their own original Buddha nature or to express or realize that Buddha nature. This could not be done necessarily according to the Lotus Sutra, the Vimalakirti Sutra, and more could not be done whenever you completely seclude yourself and isolate yourself from all sentient beings. For the last part of this episode, we should discuss Confucianism in its context as a religion. I know that a minute ago we just said that it is inherently a social philosophy, but we have also learned that ritual is a cornerstone of that philosophy, and ritual is something that can belong to the realm of religion. Moreover, approaching Confucianism from the angle of religious practice gets us out of the text a little bit and more into the things that people actually do, even to this day. It's a little bit controversial to regard Confucianism as an Asian religious tradition. However, I think that this highlights a lot of important things that are missed whenever you stick only to the texts. Naturally, what makes it controversial to say that Confucianism is an Asian religious tradition has to do with the fact that religion itself is something that's really, really, really hard to define. We have discussed this at length, and so we don't need to go back to it. We should also say that it's controversial to call Confucianism a religion because it's historically been thought of as a textual philosophy rather than a religious tradition with rituals and practices which are specific to it and not to another religion. That is to say that many people across history, especially Westerners, have thought that Confucianism was strictly a philosophy which determined how one ought to act if they were practicing this Chinese folk religion that I've mentioned before with this meta-divine realm and the ancestor worship and so on. The argument then is that because the texts are applying to these other traditions rather than to themselves, there is no religion to be found in the Confucian texts. This is actually not the case. There are several religious Confucian practices which can be attributed to Confucianism and not to another tradition, and they can be observed throughout history, and we should talk about them now. One of the most common practices which would appear to the outside observer to be a blatantly religious practice would be the enshrinement of Master Kong at a shrine where practitioners make offerings to him. We could talk for centuries about how enshrinement and offerings may or may not be the defining characteristic of a religious practice, 
but that is certainly something that would influence our interpretation in that direction. There are temples to Master Kong and his disciples where people engage in rituals which fall under the loosely defined category of traditional Chinese religious practices. This category includes religious practices that are Confucian, Taoist, Chinese Buddhist, and which are affiliated with local practices which are not definitively related to any of those three religious traditions. Such rituals include offerings of food, incense, and music to Master Kong, his disciples, and to ancestors and deities residing in heaven and ritual sacrifices made to heaven. When we say heaven here, we are referring to this meta-divine realm, known as Tian, which confers the mandate of heaven, or the mandate to rule, upon virtuous rulers who uphold their ritual obligations. But these rites continue even in the absence of a monarch. These rituals were highly influential on rites that took place and continue to take place in Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. It is the inclusion of these practices which have led some scholars to say that Confucianism is not a religion and that it does not have a practice which doesn't belong to other traditions. However, the enshrinement of Master Kong and the offerings made to him are not from any other tradition. Even if the ritual form is similar to other religious practices, the ritual purpose is not. This is a metric which can be applied to the study of ritual in other religious traditions as well. If you want to compare Jewish prayer and Christian prayer, obviously you can see that there are similarities in form, but the purpose of the practice is different or in some cases it might even be similar. Form is very important to how we understand and study ritual. However, purpose of that ritual within the texts is naturally the other side of that coin. In addition, in the modern era, we began to see a lot of Confucian churches pop up in China. This is a distinctly different entity than a shrine. The shrines are filled with iconography and they are a ritual space, and regular people are not allowed in there. Moreover, their purpose is primarily ritual offerings, whereas these churches, these Confucian churches, are congregational spaces where the community can come in and engage with Confucianism in a very democratized fashion, which is different than the way that they would engage with it in a shrine or a temple. In the shrine or in the temple, the practitioners are initiated and trained, and they are allowed into a private and forbidden space which is closer to the iconography and the holy material of the religion. In the churches, the public is allowed in, and they directly engage with the texts even if they are not initiated or trained, and the implication is that they are meant to take what they do in that space out into the rest of their lives. This is strongly based on the Western Judeo-Christian model, except that Master Kong is not thought of as God, but maybe more as a prophet, and God is not a singular personified character as much as there is a meta-divine realm, cosmology, wherein gods reside. These Confucian churches, which started popping up in the late 19th and early 20th century, live on to this day, and there are even Confucian schools and universities in China. In the next episode, we will talk about Confucianism and its position in the Chinese world in relation to other competing traditions, such as Taoism, throughout various periods in Chinese history. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Asian Religion Series, Confucianism Part 1. We've just left the story with the life and times of Master Kong and the basic doctrines of Confucianism, and I hope you'll join us next time for Confucianism Part 2, where we will pick up our story with Confucianism's position in Chinese history with relation to Taoism. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this has meant Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. 
email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.